turn it over to Elsie. Father, we uh, give you thanks for our sister. We thank you, Lord, for the things that you have and are doing in her life. Thank you, Father, for the courage she has to uh, stand in our midst and uh, be used by you. Thank you for, um, yeah, this church and this community and the posture that it takes towards those of us who, um, yeah, are on journeys of healing, uh, regardless of what we have suffered or, or also what we may have perpetrated against others. And so we, uh, yeah, we pray, Father, that today you would continue to speak through Elsie in this regard, continue to uh, open us up as a community to your healing, to your grace, and to the power of your forgiveness, Lord. And we ask these things in your name, to your glory. Amen. Well, it's good to be here. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this series. Um, Walt and I are really glad to be here uh, with you. It's such an intriguing idea, you know, eight women in the life and lineage of Jesus and eight women to speak it. I thought this was just brilliant, so thank you for that. I've always been fascinated by the fact that there are these four outsider women who are listed in the genealogy of Jesus. And you wonder why, why are they mentioned? And I think maybe this series helps to answer that question. I work with the MCC End Abuse Program, uh, as Wally mentioned, and in that context, I've come to know so many women who have, be, who have experienced abuse. I just need to move this up a bit. <laughs> They're stray, stray, brave, strong, resilient women, and it's been a privilege to do this work now for 12 years. Before 2007, I coordinated this program of support for single moms for almost 20 years, and that was a real learning experience because these were women that had all kinds of barriers in their lives. They were really disadvantaged, and they were so brave, and they were courageous, and they taught me so much. So I retired from that work thinking, well, I'm done now. I was 60 years old after all. And then, to my surprise, this MCC job called me in a very persuasive way. And here I am 12 years later in the best job in the world because I witness people who have been so wounded come to healing. And I thank Pam, where are you sitting? <laughs> back there. Thank you for sharing. It takes tremendous courage to do that, and um, I just want to honor you for having the courage to share your story. So I witness people coming to places of healing, and I also ha have the chance of seeing people who have done harm um, acknowledge that and learn healthier ways of being in relationship. I brought along some of our brochures. They're in the back on the bar, um, and they tell you a bit more about the work we do. There are also a couple of booklets, uh, publications that we've put together at MCC that help to clarify some issues. There's a booklet on pornography. There's one on abuse. It's a guide for church leaders, but it could be for anyone. And also one called Understanding Sexual Abuse by a Church Leader or Caregiver. So those three are all free. There are also two books there that have a small price on them, but um, you're welcome to take a look at those. 
So we offer women who have experienced abuse in their intimate relationship 10-week support groups. They're called When Love Hurts. And we do these in the fall, and then in January to March, and then in the spring. So just this Tuesday coming up, we're starting with a brand new group of about 14 women. Plus, there are women who have been in that initial group who are doing phase two, and some who are doing phase three. So women can actually come for 30 weeks if they want to. And we're also now initiating a program called phase four, which is more deep spiritual healing. And that's a, that's a new initiative that will be taking off in the fall. We have a total of about 35 to 40 women coming to our groups every week. And over these 12 years that I've been at MCC, we've seen hundreds of women come through. And it has been such an opportunity to, to hear their stories. Sometimes it's the first place they've ever told their story. And that in itself brings healing. And they support each other. Uh, they encourage each other, and so it's a program that I, I think is just amazing and wonderful. It's called When Love Hurts. The men's program, Home Improvement, great name for a men's program, uh, meets for 15 weeks, twice a year, uh, two groups per year, and there's 20 to 25 men in each group. It's very moving to see a big circle of men sitting and talking about what it takes to be healthy in relationship and acknowledging some of the mistakes they've made and learning new ways of being in a relationship. That group is facilitated by a husband and wife team, so they see the modeling of mutual respectful relationship happening with them. I've also done some work in the area of uh, responding to sexual misconduct. Um, I've done some workshops with pastors, as Wally mentioned, and uh, I've also done some classes for Columbia Bible College students. I'm going there Tuesday again. And there's been opportunity to support those who have been harmed. And so when an invitation came to talk about Bathsheba, I was thrilled to be in a place where I could do that, where I could speak for her, where I could advocate for her. I think she's been one of the most misunderstood, misperceived, misrepresented, vilified people in Scripture. And I am honored to be able to do this, this uh, message. As I've sat with Bathsheba for several weeks, I've been sad for her. I've been angry at what happened to her, how she's been blamed in articles online or in commentaries, even to this day. Leonard Cohen had his part in that too, in his Hallelujah song. It's been an emotional task to prepare this message but I was glad to be able to do it. So when you think about Bathsheba and how you've heard about her in church or in Sunday school or in just in the world, what is the first word that comes to mind? We're going to use the flip chart here. And I love using the flip chart. We always use them in our groups at work. And so we're going to make two columns. And I'm going to ask you first what you think of when you think of King David. What are characteristics you think of? <laughs> Besides Bathsheba. <laughs> Arrogance. Okay. Other words? Strong. Poet. King. 
king, of course. <laughs> yeah. Promiscuous. Promiscuous. Emotional. Uh, you just have to read the Psalms. I mean, the Psalm that was read this morning, that was, his, that was his writing after Nathan had come to visit him. And you'll hear more about that later. Spontaneous. Spontaneous. Or maybe impulsive. <laughs> Wealthy. Oh, yeah. Okay, we're running out of space here. Does, has any... You know, usually when I do this with students or whatever, the first thing I hear is he was a man after God's heart. Right? Isn't that something we all know? Okay. So Bathsheba, what do you think of when you think of Bathsheba? Victim? Beautiful. Oh, this pen is dying. Beautiful. And victim. Temptress. Mm -hmm. Exhibitionist. Mm -hmm. You know, I went online to see what kind of artwork there was about Bathsheba. Well, there were just dozens of paintings online, but none of them are suitable to show in church. So... <laughs> I found one. She was married to a worthy man. Yes. Other words? Powerless. Okay. So we have contrasting words here. We have contrasting words here. So we'll explore the story now and see what we come up with in the end. Thank you. So we're going to move on to the text. And we'll just read the first five verses of 2 Samuel 11 now. In the spring, in the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab... He was the commander of David's army. Out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So David's at home. Normally he should be off at war. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof on the roof of his palace, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite, the honorable man we talked about. And this was a fairly decent picture I could find of her, so. <laughs> then David sent messengers to get her, she came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. This is what she was doing when she was bathing on, on her roof. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. 
Now, let's examine David's circumstances at the time. <clears throat> He's just had a string of military conquests. He's about 40 to 50 years old. He's at the pinnacle of his success as a powerful king. He has six wives, 10 concubines, plus Michael, who was his, third his first wife, but she seems to have kind of disappeared from the picture in the text. Through Nathan the prophet, he has been promised by God that his kingdom would endure forever. His throne would be established forever. Nathan was kind of his private, personal prof prophet, it seemed. So he has stayed behind when the troops went off to war. And this was unusual. Why might he have stayed behind? Was he basking in his successes? Taking a vacation from his responsibilities as king? Or maybe he was getting bored with it all. Bathsheba, on the other hand, is at home without her husband. And that makes her really vulnerable. Her husband is Uriah, the Hittite. He's a Canaanite. He's a foreigner who has been absorbed into the Israeli army. She is the daughter, as the text mentioned, of Eliam. And she's a granddaughter of one of David's counselors. So he knows her family. She's washing herself in a monthly ritual of cleansing after her period, according to the law. She is very beautiful. She's on her rooftop, the most private place in her home. There are likely walls around her or possibly curtaining. No one can see her up here. But David's palace is, as we would expect, built at the height of land. He's sort of the very highest in the city. So he can observe the city for the well-being and protection of the people. So he's strolling around on the roof of his palace. He sees Bathsheba. Now there's nothing wrong with seeing Bathsheba. But then he inquires about her. And then he sends messengers to go get her. So he made some choices here that sent him in a direction. And it reminded me of the verse in James 1 when we're told, when you're tempted, don't say God is tempting you. But you're, we are tempted when our own desires give birth to, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when that has conceived, gives birth to death. And we'll just see how that plays out in David's life. He made a choice. Bathsheba had no way of knowing what he wanted. Maybe her heart was pounding because she thought he might have news about Uriah being hurt in battle, killed in battle, whatever. She was powerless, as somebody, as Walt mentioned, and David was the most powerful person in the nation. If we, if we measured it on a scale of, you know, zero to 100, David would be at 100 and she'd be like way down there. How could she have said no? Sometimes in the commentary it'll say, I just read this the other day in a, in a brand new commentary. It said, well, she obviously didn't resist David. Well, how could she have said no? Because people who said no to David could get killed. She's voiceless. So she goes with the messengers. He lays with her. In other words, he sexually assaults her. And he sends her home. And she conceives and send this, sends this message to David. I'm pregnant. 
I am pregnant. We can be quite sure this wasn't a joyful message at all. She was now in a terrible dilemma. Her life is altered forever, and it's not just because of the pregnancy, of course. I've had people say to me, well, Bathsheba shouldn't have been out on her roof bathing. And today we hear things like, well, she shouldn't have been wearing that dress. Or she shouldn't have been at that party. Or she shouldn't have been out alone walking at night across the university campus with nobody with her. Or she must have been attracted to an abusive man to marry him, and so on. And those are all victim-blaming statements. Back to David, as soon as he receives her message, he springs into action with a devious plan to cover up for his sin. He invites Uriah home for a break. So here we see where the desire has led to sin, it's leading to further, further problems. So we'll read a little bit more of the text from verse 6 to 14. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him, How's Joab? How are the soldiers? And how is the war going? All those nice kind of things. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, wash your feet is actually a euphemism for having sex. So this is David's plan. Uriah is going to go home. He's going to sleep with Bathsheba. Nobody will know anything else than that. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of the king's servants and did not go down to the house. David was told, Uriah didn't go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why did you not go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in, in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Uriah was a man of integrity and loyalty, an honorable man, as we said. Where men were, when men were in battle, any sexual activity was considered to make them unfit for battle. But David was persistent. He kept Uriah there another day. He feasted and drank with him, got him drunk, but Uriah still didn't go home. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, the commander of the army. He sealed it and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Uriah, put Uriah up in front where the fighting is the fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. And so Uriah carried and del delivered his own death warrant to Joab. And we know the rest of this story. And so here we see sin giving birth to death for Uriah. When Uriah's wife heard, the text continues, that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. I really like this slide because it, it shows Bathsheba, I think, in an honest way. She lie, lay on the floor face down, wailing and mourning because her husband, the love of her life, had been killed. One wonders if she ever had any idea that David had actually orchestrated his death. 
It's awful if you think about it. The text continues, after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Enter Nathan the prophet, the same one who had much earlier delivered God's rich promises to David. Chapter 12 gives us that story. And Nathan took a great risk in confronting David, speaking truth to power. Others who had done that had lost their lives. The king could have whatever he wanted. He could do whatever he wanted. Even get rid of people who interfered with his plans or questioned his actions or who threatened his kingship. However, Nathan was strategic. He told David a story about a poor man whose family had a beloved pet sheep. And after all, David had been a shepherd, so he would relate to this scenario. The text tells us it was like a daughter to the man. But there was also a rich man who had a large number of sheep and cattle. And one day, a traveler came to visit him. And the rich man didn't want to kill any of his own sheep and cattle to prepare the meal. So he took the poor man's one sheep and prepared it for dinner. David was furious and responded that that rich man must die. Nathan responded with a very short answer. You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. And then Nathan gave him the message about the gravity of his sin, the evil he had done in the sight of the Lord, and he continued with the prediction that calamity would come upon David's house out of his own household. And as we continue to read the rest of the story in the next chapters of 2 Samuel and into 1 Kings, we witness the rape, murder, and mayhem that infiltrated David's household. Amnon rapes Tamar, his half-sister. Absalom, kill, Absalom kills Amnon in revenge. Absalom plots to take over David's throne. He is defeated and is killed in battle by Joab, who's David's commander. Adonijah, who's another brother, the oldest one left at this point, plots to be the next king. Solomon executes Adonijah after he becomes king. And these were all David's children. These guys were all brothers, and they're killing each other. After Nathan spoke truth to power, David responded with the words recorded in Psalm 51, which were read so beautifully this morning. I have sinned against the Lord, is what the text tells us. But Psalm 51 gives us a much more expanded version. I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. And then he says, against you, you only have I sinned which isn't quite enough. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He should sinned against all his people. And I have done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. <clears throat> David's response. David repents. Power repents. The truth prevails. And maybe that's why we think of him as a man after God's heart. He was willing to acknowledge his sin. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. 
you're not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. So in addition to all that other stuff that he was told by Nathan would happen to his family, now this baby is going to die. Evil such as David had perpetrated has consequences. Even if there is forgiveness, it has consequences that still continue. Even though David pleaded with God for the child, the child did die. And it says he mourned during the child's illness, and then he got up and got dressed and had a meal. There's no word about the sorrow this was for Bathsheba, whose firstborn baby boy had just died. But the text tells us that David comforted her, he made love to her, and they had another child named Solomon. And then David went back to war against Rabbah, which hadn't been finished earlier. And this is not just some ancient story. It is repeated over and over today. Abusive power takes place in schools, in the family, in the workplace, and in the church. Last year in May, Columbia Bible College hosted the Church 2 conference in order to address multiple sexual violations that a CBC professor had committed years ago. They had never been properly dealt with by the college or by our Mennonite conferences. It wasn't until 1991 when one of the many victims made a disclosure of sexual abuse by him, by Murray Phillips, that a stop was put to his behavior at the college. He had been teaching and counseling students at CBC for 17 years. At the Church 2 conference last May, we heard of the devastation that had been caused by the abuse, not only for one of the many victims, but also for her family. And there's the website address. Um, I encourage you to check out the information on the conference on the CBC website. Uh, particularly President Brian Bourne's opening address, very courageous, strong statements made. And the two plenary sessions are available there too. It's worth watching. I've supported women who have experienced abuse of power at the hands of a trusted leader. Life is never the same for them. There may be a lot of healing, but it takes a lot of support for that. And it still leaves its scars. A few years ago, I had the privilege of supporting Crystal. She was a young person on staff in a church who was sexually abused by the more senior pastor in her church who had been assigned to be her mentor. So she was in her early 30s, young mom with young kids. He was in his 50s going on towards 60. So there you see the power imbalance. He's been at the church for years and years. She's new. He's to mentor her. When she made the disclosure of the abuse that he had perpetrated on her, she was further abused by the church's response. And she and her family had to move away to another province in order to healing, for healing to begin. She has written her story, available in the book Broken and Beautiful, which is on the bar at the back there. I have several copies at $10 each. If you're interested, it's really well done. She tells her story, and then her mother, who's a counselor, does some teaching around what she's just talked about. In her book, she says, 
It took a year for me to realize what had been done to me, and another year of therapy with our counselor to process everything. And I'm amazed at the healing God has brought. A few more years have passed since I dis disclosed the abuse, and by the grace of God, I'm alive today, and I'm so thankful. We can cite other examples of present-day clergy sexual misconduct. Willow Creek Church, the mega church in Chicago, has experienced an enormous crisis. There have been complaints of sexual misconduct by the founding lead pastor for years. The leadership of the church covered up for him after disclosures had been made. To this day, unlike David, who repented, there has not been an acknowledgement of guilt by the pastor, only an excuse. I realize I've put myself into situations that were not wise. I was naive about the dynamics those situations created, and for that I'm very sorry. So when, when he's saying he's put himself into situations that weren't wise, it subtly is blaming the women, right? Because they're the situation. As is often the case, power does not yield easily to truth. The leadership of Willow Creek Church eventually acknowledged the seriousness of the situation and have resigned with new leadership put in place. And we can only hope and pray that that church will be able to recover. When the course of a person's life is changed because someone with power abuses it to take what they want, where should we as the people of God be? What is our mandate when we learn of these violations? Nathan had two roles in his ministry. Number one, he fearlessly holds power accountable. David is king. He has armies of warriors at his disposal. He has all the money, all the fame, all the resources of the kingdom. Nathan only has his reputation and his integrity. He is the man who speaks for God. Yet Nathan does not hesitate to look David in the eye and say, you were wrong. You were wrong and you're going to pay for it. If we're going to call ourselves followers of Jesus, we must not hesitate to speak truth to power. When abuse by a person in a position of power and leadership happens, we must stand and say, no, this behavior is unacceptable and it will be made right. The second role Nathan had was to stand with the powerless. Years later, Nathan came to Bathsheba, who encouraged her to go to David. He ad and she advocated for her second, her second son, Solomon, to become king. And it's Nathan who actually orchestrates Bathsheba's son becoming king, rather than Adonijah. And she became the king's mother, which ensured some security for her. Probably if Adonijah had become king, then Solomon and, and Bathsheba would have been eliminated because they would be seen to be a threat to the throne. That's what it was all about, a threat to power. In the same way, when we see injustice happen, if we want to follow God and live by the ethic of Jesus, we must also fight for the empowerment of the victims. Unfortunately, what happens too often in the church and in other institutions is that the offender is supported and the victim is blamed. Words like, she ruined his career, or, but he did so much good, are heard. And standing ovations are given to the offending leader. The situation is turned upside down, with the offender becoming the victim and the victim the offender, 
the one who ruined his life. And I can relate to that because way back in 1991, when that disclosure about the Columbia Bible College professor was made, he was speaking in our church regularly, and he was really highly admired. He was an excellent speaker. And when I heard that disclosure on the church parking lot on a Sunday morning, I went, who is she and why is she doing this to him? That was my gut-level response. And I think it's only natural because you know and trust the leader. Who is this person, this, this invisible person that's making this accusation? And so it's really important to be aware of that, that we tend to always go with the person who has more power. So we have to be sure to be standing on the side of the power powerless. Survivors of sexual abuse have experienced horrific events that have long-lasting and complicated consequences. Pam shared us that, that with us this morning. Nevertheless, survivors are courageous individuals if they are honored and valued as strong people and are supported by their faith communities then more survivors may speak out. And so, Pam, you've modeled something today that perhaps will have ripple effects. And the church then becomes a safer place for everybody, especially for our children. And when I think about your, your story, Pam, I think about the verse in Romans 8:28, which tells us that in all circumstances... And abuse is never part of God's plan for your life. But in all circumstances, no matter how awful they are, God works together with us, with those who love him, to bring about good. And that's what I heard in your story. One of the lessons the story of David's abuse of power teaches us at this, that's, that this was not about sex. This is about power. And if we want to be the people of God, if we want to play the role of Nathan in this story, then we must fearlessly speak truth to power and stand alongside the victims because that is where we will find God. Thank you.